You can open your Bibles to that epistle of Paul to the Roman church. Romans chapter 9. I want to pick up reading this morning in verse 6, down through verse 13. Romans 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. That has to do with what was just said. and We'll come back to that in a, in a moment. For not all who are, now our ESV and the NAS puts descended here. The word is not in the original. It doesn't need to be there. Actually, the King James, New King James leaves it out, and I think it's probably better left out. For not all who are from Israel or of Israel belong to Israel. It's more concise. It's more to the point. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. But this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue or stand, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. If ever there was a portion of Scripture to fire up disagreements or arguments, it's right here in Romans 9. But have you ever noticed, is it not typical with most arguments? Think with me here. That the two arguing usually are not very interested in hearing what the other has to say. Have you ever watched two people argue? You know, if you just if you sit back, and you've probably been in a few yourself, but if you just sit back and you watch two people argue, you notice their kind of impatience and agitation as they're doing what? They're not listening. They're just waiting for the other person to get them talking so that they can talk. And in fact, they might even interrupt the other person before they're done talking. Right? That's typically what you find. They're far from being interested in hearing what the other has to say. They're not really interested in doing a whole lot of listening. Is that not typically how it is? And you know what? That's exactly how it can be with God's Word as well. People... Have their own opinion. Just about everybody you come across has their own opinion. There are very few people when you ask them about truths of Scripture, truths of life, truths of heaven, truths about sin, truths about God and about Christ that don't have their opinion and aren't fully ready to tell you about it. Very few will say, I don't know. Folks, few really stay still long enough for the Bible to speak to them. So what I'm asking you this morning is to be wise. Be wise. Listen before you speak. If when I'm done, if you want to argue with what God says here, that's your business. My business is to try to make clear and plain what God actually does say here. So please, don't argue yet. 
first look and listen and learn. So, here we go. Now look, guys, if you're ever going to rightly understand Romans chapter 9, I know people love to run there. And they love to proof text their doctrinal stances. And very few people actually understand what Paul's arguing for here. The whole chapter fits together. And it fits together with what came in 8 and what's coming in the next two chapters. Now, guys, you've got to keep this one thing straight in your mind. Paul has one specific agenda here. He's going after something. What's at stake in this chapter is this. God's faithfulness. You've got to remember that. The faithfulness of God. Paul is dealing with this. Does God keep His promises? This is always the issue. You know what? I'm going to remind you of this over and over and over and over again. All the way through 9 and 10 and 11. Because you've got to keep this straight in mind. Paul is arguing for something. All the things about election. All the things about sovereignty. All the things he says through these three chapters. It's he's coming back to this one thing. Over and over and over. He is verifying. He is proving. He is substantiating that God is faithful. And he keeps his promises. That is always the issue. You know what? You need to let. Romans 9, 6 literally ring in your ears. It needs to be there. This is what it says. It is not as though the Word of God has failed. Now, here's the thing. Something has happened that makes it seem like God's Word has failed. And Paul wants to set the record straight. It has not. So what is it that makes it seem like the Word of God has failed? In the first three verses of the chapter, we see Paul in anguish. Why? His kinsmen Israelites, according to the flesh, they're lost, they're perishing. But, in verses 4 and 5, Paul points out that these same perishing Israelites were also given marvelous promises of God. They were given covenants. They were even, they're even given adoption as sons. And right there is where you have your problem. Here's here's what it is, folks. If Israel is God's chosen covenant people, and yet most of them are lost, cut off from Christ, cut off from salvation, then it raises the question as to whether or not God has been faithful to His promises or not. That's the the issue. This has massive implications for you and me as Christians. If God's promises to the Jews have failed, then what in the world are you and I hoping in? I mean, that's the issue. You feel the weight of this? The reason Christians ought to be concerned here is that if God's promises to Israel do not hold for them, then what in the world? So what if God promises me that all things are going to work together for my good? So what if He promises me that there's no condemnation now if I'm in Christ? And so what if He says that ultimately the love of Christ, nothing in this world can separate me from it? You see what I'm saying? If God can't be trusted when it comes to the Jews, then where does that put us? I mean, you guys see that? So what if He makes all these glorious promises in Romans 8? So what if He can't keep His promises to the Jews? That's what's at stake here. That's the whole issue. You've got to keep that in mind. That's what Paul's arguing for. It's a defense of God's faithfulness. It is not as though the Word of God has failed. Now, look. As, you know, in, in every time that I've, as I've been contemplating this in my own mind, I'm imagining some of you sitting out there. And you're saying to yourself, you know what? I don't think I need a three-chapter explanation as to why the Jews are perishing. I'm already confident in Christ. I'm, and, and, and I mean, you're saying this not in a proud way, 
But you're saying, I'm confident in the promises God has given me. When God promises I'm secure in Christ and there's no condemnation for me, I believe it. And maybe that's where you're at. You aren't questioning the faithfulness of God because the Jews are perishing. For some of you Christians, it's likely that's never even entered your minds. It's not a problem for you. The fact the Jews are perishing even after God gave them promises. That may be a theological stumbling block for others, but it's not for you. It's not a big deal. And look, if that's the case, you might be tempted to go on a spiritual holiday until we get to Romans 12. You, you, I, I mean, seriously, you may basically see this as irrelevant for you. You're not a Jew. doesn't matter. You're a Christian. You trust God's promises for Christians. But look, folks, this is what I want you to see. I want, you to, I want to remind you of something, really, as a Christian. Do you know what's said about you? Through many tribulations. If you're a true Christian in here, you have God-given, inspired word that through many tribulations, you'll enter the kingdom of God. Now you may say, brother, what in the world does that have to do with Jews perishing? Let me tell you. Let me tell you exactly what it has to do. Just this. There are days and seasons ahead of you in this life when you are going to suffer and you are going to agonize in ways that are going to tempt you to question whether God has abandoned you. There are going to be times in your life when you're going to be wondering whether God's promises for you are true or not. Whether He's forsaken you or not. I mean, have any of you been there? You're suffering and you're thinking, Father, what's going on here? Why are you doing this? You're calling him into question. You're wondering about his faithfulness. And you see the very same arguments that declare his faithfulness when it comes to the Jews are the very same arguments when you're in the place tempted to question God. That'll help you to get through. Because Paul goes into deep, fundamental I mean, mysterious almost doctrines. He doesn't take us into these mind-bending deep doctrines just to fascinate us. He takes them there because he knows our faith needs to sink its teeth into these things. It'll hold you up, folks. There's days coming when you're going to need Paul's arguments here. You're going to need this truth. I'll tell you this. When you get in the midst of the fire, you know what holds you up? Faith. And faith is not this mindless, abstract thing. Faith centers on truth. When you're in trouble, when you're hurt, when you feel like the whole world around you is crumbling, do you know what holds us up as children of God? It's truth. It's going to the Word of God and it's trusting. Even though I can't see, even though it feels like this isn't so, my faith locks into this truth. And this is what Paul's doing right here. Even though it may seem like God has forsaken His promises, it's not true. You'll need this, folks. So don't go on vacation. Stay with me, brethren. So here we are. Why has God's Word not failed? I know I've already mentioned this in the past, but why hasn't it failed? How is it that the covenant people of God are perishing without Christ and God's Word has not failed? How can that be? Paul's answer is at the end of verse 6 and at the beginning of verse 7. Read it with me. Not all who are, and I'm leaving descended out because it's, it's in italics if you've got the NAS. It means it's not there in the original. I'm going to leave it right out. Not all who are from Israel belong to Israel. That's how he says it the first time. Now he's basically going to reiterate that same truth, only he's going to use a little bit different words. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. There's your truth, folks. That is why God's word hasn't failed. Why hasn't it failed? Jews are perishing. Aren't they God's covenant people? Yes, but the reason that his promises have not failed is because... Not all who are descended, or not all who are of Israel belong to Israel. Not all the children of Abraham 
Not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring. Paul's answer is very simple. Here's what it is. You can be an Israelite without being an Israelite. Or you can be a Gentile and be an Israelite. But that's another thing. You can be a physical Jew and not be a spiritual Jew. You can be, a, you can be one outwardly without being one inwardly. You can be a physical descendant of Abraham's and not be one of his spiritual children. In other words, the promises of God were only meant for true Israel. The true spiritual children of Abraham and not a single one of his promises have ever failed. Look, if it seems like God's promises have failed to you, it's only because you are wrongly defining who Israel is. That's what he's saying. That's his basic thrust here. Now, Paul doesn't just make this assertion and then kind of leave us dangling out there hanging around. He makes it and then he gives us some very definite Old Testament examples to reinforce what he's just said. We're going to look at two of those right now. That's basically what's going to consist of the message this morning. He first illustrates this truth with Isaac, and it's found in verses 7, 8, and 9. Then he illustrates the same truth with Jacob and Esau, and it's found in verses 10 through 13. So, first, verses nine or 7 through 9. Let's read them. Now remember, Paul is giving us this illustration of Isaac. Always remember this. To prove to us that not all who are offspring of Abraham are truly children of Abraham. That's his point. So let's read. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And here Paul quotes Genesis 21, 12. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. And here he quotes Genesis 18.10. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Now folks, let's just cut right to the heart of this whole thing. Sandwiched right between these two Old Testament references is the gut issue here. What is it? Here's Paul's interpretation. Verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. Now stop right there. Do you see the heart of the matter? This all comes down to identifying who the children of God are. Paul sees in his mind... This vast mass of Abraham's offspring, his descendants. But he says, no, God does not count all of these as offspring. No, 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 no. It's the children of God, the children of promise. They are the true offspring. That's the point here. You see, when he brings in children of God, that's on the level where we're at. He's, he's, look, you see what he's doing? He's taking this whole thing about Israel, this whole realm of, of thought about who's a true Jew and not, and he's bringing it right down to where we live as Christians. You guys see that? It, it's got everything to do with who's a child of God. That's what we are. That's what Romans 8 was saying. You're a child, you're, you're sons of God. You have the Spirit. You're led by the Spirit. Right? Spirit of God bears witness to you that you are sons of God. You've got this, this whole idea going by. This is where we're at. He's basically talking on a Christian level. Look, he's saying it's been the same all the time. The way to get to heaven, the way for, for a right standing with God has always been to be a child of God. That's always the issue. It's nothing else. It's not like the Jews somehow have their own thing going over here. It's all the same, folks. You've got to be a child of God. That's the point. And if you're a child of God, you're the true offspring. Now, what in the world does Isaac have to do with that? Everything. Let, let, 
I don't want you to turn back to Genesis because that could be really involved and there's a number of places to look. But look, just listen to me. You guys can go back and read. If you, if you want to read about Abraham, start in Genesis 12 and read forward. And you can read about all that I want to tell you right now. i just give you a condensed history. In Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abraham, He gave him a covenant. He gave him promises. Here's what it says. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, do you get that? Something's going to happen through Abraham. By way of the promises made to him, something's going to happen that's going to bless every family. Now, folks, this is clearly looking to Christ. Clearly. How does Christ bless every family? Because every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every family, folks, is going to have somebody in it that's going to be plucked out by the grace of God. Trust Jesus Christ. That blessing is going to shower this earth. And this covenant, this promise is being given. But listen, that's not all. It wasn't just given to Abraham. In Genesis 17, 7, look, God addends this thing. He amends this thing. There's an addendum, I should say. Listen to this. I will establish my covenant between me, that's God, and you, that's Abraham, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. You see, folks, the offspring are just as much partakers of this covenant. God says, I'll be a God to you. You know what? That's, that's the kind of wording you have in the new covenant. This has to do... What does the book of, of Galatians say? Who is a true child of Abraham? Those who trust Christ. You see, it all comes back to us. It has everything to do with Christ. It's constantly pointing to Christ. Okay, but take Abraham. He's been given this. He's got this promise that, that this covenant is his. This covenant's going to extend to his offspring. He's got these promises that he's going to be the father of just multitudes. God brings him out one time and says, Look at the stars, Abraham. In fact, his name in the beginning wasn't even Abraham. It was Abram, which like means father of many. And, and he says, Oh, we're going to change that name. Now we're going to call you Abraham, which means like father of multitudes and bazillions and bazillions. If you can, have you, look, I'm not talking about looking at the stars from the city of San Antonio with all the lights on where you can see like five. I'm talking go, go out into the Rocky Mountains where there's no man-made lights. You guys ever been somewhere where you just, it's, it's phenomenal, the number of stars. Well, that's what. Abraham was able to see. And God said, look, if you can number these, you can number your offspring. You can number those that are going to come from you. I mean, he's changing his name. You're not even going to be a father of many. You're going to be a father of multiple. What's the problem in all this, folks? He has no children. I mean, this is great. God, you're telling me that I'm going to have all this. My wife is barren. I'm an old man. we got problems here. But look, when, when God says this to Abraham, does He say, Oh, Lord, that is so great. I'm going to wait here and I'm going to trust You to do this and I know You're good to Your promises and I know they come true every time and I know You're going to do this and so I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to try to get innovative. I'm not going to try to get creative. I'm just going to trust You and watch You perform Your miracle. Is that what He said? It's not what He said. Instead, Sarah and Abraham put their heads together and they want to try to help God keep His promise. Seems like they're not really certain that He can pull this thing off. So, what do they do? Sarah's barren. She's never had a child in her life. Well, they're going to try to help God to get His own promise to come true. So, they do what they can do in their own power. And what do they do? Sarah comes up with some innovative idea. She's got an Egyptian servant. Her name is Hagar. 
she's thinking, well, this woman is likely to be able to give. So in the tent they go, and voila, out comes Ishmael. Ishmael, his mother is Hagar. But you know what? The problem is, Paul looks right here in these three verses in Romans 9, he looks at Ishmael and he says, Ishmael is a child of the flesh. This means that his standing before God is only that standing of what man can accomplish in his own fleshly power, by his own fleshly human ingenuity, his own fleshly strength. This is Ishmael. So God speaks to Abraham and says, you know, Abraham, that didn't fix the problem. Ishmael doesn't count as your offspring. Now, I use that and I emphasize that word count because you know where it comes from? Romans 9.8. Right there at the end of 9.8, you have this word count or reckon. For a person to truly be counted or reckoned as a true offspring, they've got to be a son of promise. That is the only way. A child of God. A child of promise. That's the only way to truly be counted as offspring. And God says to Abraham, Ishmael does not count. Doesn't do it. God says, I'm going to give you a son who does count. A son by your wife, Sarah. But you know what? We've got another problem. By this time... Abraham's a hundred years old. Sarah's 90 years old. Folks, not exactly the ages of fertility. Abraham realizes the human impossibility of them having a child in their old age. He's already got this son. He's, he, you guys remember this? He pleads with God. Oh, that Ishmael may live before you. But God says, no. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. And that's the very context behind the Pauline quote there in Romans 9.9. God promises about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And that son is Isaac. Now Paul gives... Look, watch. Watch this. Paul gives us this illustration Because he wants us to see exactly this truth. Being a physical child of Abraham, even the eldest son of Abraham, that didn't make Ishmael God's chosen heir of promise. God's sovereign purpose was to give Abraham and Sarah a son of promise. God made the promise and God brings that promise to pass. The Word of God. This is his point. The Word of God did not fail. It never fails. His Word always stands and His promises don't depend on Sarah and Abraham helping Him out. When God makes a promise, He's telling us with absolute certainty as to what He is going to bring about no matter how impossible it might seem. So what's the point of this? Just because Ishmael was Abraham's son, he was certainly no more than a child of the flesh. It never made him a true Israelite to simply be descended from Abraham. God's covenant didn't fail with regards to Ishmael because it was never given to Ishmael. That's the point. In fact, it was never given to anyone like Ishmael. Why do I say that? I'll tell you why I say that. You know what? The only ones of you in here that are going to enter the very borders of heaven, the only ones of you in this room that are accepted by God right now, it's not a single one of you who are children of the flesh. Not one of you counts. What Isaac is, is a very picture of what all God's children are. They are children of the miraculous. They are children of God. They are children of His promise. They are children of His power. Children of His sovereignty. Just as Isaac is able to come forth and God's able to go in there when everything humanly speaking said, this can't happen. God makes it happen. Because His promises hold up 
every single time. And He uses His power to hold them up. And just because you walk in here today and you're all wretched and depraved and your life is wasted, and it may seem impossible, I can't clean you up, you can't clean you up, so be it. God's promises are greater than all that. What sort of pit do you think He dragged us out of? We're not a bunch of good people grew up in nice homes. We're people that relish in the depths of sin. And God supernaturally, just like He plucked out Isaac out of barren old woman, He can take us out of the very material of the fallen flesh of Adam. You see the point here, folks. God's promises never, 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 never fail. Never. But they're only given to us in Christ. Children of the flesh have no part. In how many churches today, and even in this very room, we have people who profess to be Christians, but they're not children of promise. They're not children who have come into the realm of God through supernatural event. Being born again. The new birth. It's like the birth of Isaac. It's a miracle. We are the ones. It's always been that way. And that's what Paul's proving. Yes, the masses perish. Yes, the mass of the Jews are perishing. But that doesn't mean God has failed. That simply means they're children of the flesh. They were never partakers of the promises. Never partakers of the covenants. And certainly never partakers of the adoption. The children of God are the adopted ones. We come in, folks, by faith in Christ. That is where the true offspring come from. But you know what? You know what? Here's the problem. Especially if Paul's arguing this way to Jews. Somebody's going to come along and they're going to say, well, you know what? It makes perfect sense to me why Ishmael was rejected and Isaac was taken. Their mothers. Sarah was a Jew. Or at least a precursor to. Hagar was an Egyptian. That's the issue. That's why God chose Isaac over Ishmael. Ishmael's mother was a Gentile. She was an Egyptian. But you know what? Paul's ready for that guy. He says, oh, now I thought you might say that. So, let me give you another example. Jacob and Esau, Romans 9, verse 10. And not only so, not only is that an example, I've got another one for you here. But also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of His call, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, here it is. Notice right away what Paul does here. He hammers right in on the fact that Rebekah conceived two children by one man. You know what he's emphasizing? Contrary to the way it was with Isaac and Ishmael, who had the same father and different mothers, here are two children with the identical same parents. In fact, these two children are nothing less than twins. So if you were mistakenly led to believe that in Paul's first illustration of Isaac and Ishmael, that maybe Isaac got a little bit of favor from God over Ishmael because it had something to do with their mothers... Paul says, oh no, that wasn't the case at all. The story of Jacob and Esau proves that. God chooses who God chooses, and it has everything to do with His eternal purpose and nothing to do with who our parents are or anything to do with us. Do you all see that? If you don't see it fully yet, I think as we go a little further here, you will. Now let's take a closer look at the second illustration. 
Notice the two Old Testament references in verses 12 and 13. God says the older, that's Esau, the firstborn, the older will serve the younger, that's Jacob, who is later renamed Israel. This is a quote from Genesis 25-23. Then, in verse 13, we have this. A quote from Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3. Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. Let me tell you something. What this is teaching us, when it says the older will serve the younger, Paul just got done saying prior to that that this was declared before they were born. You know what that means? That means God declares a man's destiny before he's born. That's what that means. Not only that, not only does he declare their destiny before they're born, He actually declares their destinies at such a time when they had done nothing, either good or bad. Now hold it right there. You know as well as I do that if Paul had just said that God determined their destinies before they were born, and God determined to set His love on Jacob and not on Esau, you know what? If Paul had, if Paul had just said, before they were born, God determined that the older would serve the younger. Before they were born, God determined that He would love Jacob and hate Esau. If He just said that, you know as well as I do, someone would come along and say, ah, yes, God did determine those things before they were born. But, you know why He did? He picked Jacob over and above Esau because he saw that Jacob would believe in him. Or because he foresaw that Jacob would grow up and be lovable and worthy of his love. Or he saw into the future that Jacob would be served by his brother. Paul says, nope, I'm not going to let you get away with that. So I'm going to include this in there. Now before that happens to anybody... He tells us this, God picked Jacob over and above Esau before they were born and they had done nothing either good or bad. You know what Paul's point in including that statement is? It's to assure us that whatever good or whatever bad either man might do or would do or could possibly do had absolutely no bearing whatsoever on what God would do. You see that? Further notice what else God did. He chose not the eldest, which that's the son of honor, the firstborn, but He chose the youngest. Again, to show, His thing is often to choose the one that's most unlikely to be chosen. You know what? He not only didn't choose the eldest, He also did not choose the favorite of his father Isaac. But the least favorite. You remember how it says, Esau was the favorite of Isaac. Jacob, those of us that were over at Hilburn the other night, we know he was kind of hung around with Mama. God chose Jacob. Why? To show us that the choice was unconditional. That means God sets His love on whomever He wants to set His love and it does not have anything to do with any condition we meet. He does it because He wants to. His choice is rooted in God alone and not in man. Look, both of these men were descended from Abraham. Both were sons 
of Isaac, the child of promise. And yet, God does not set His love on both. He picks one to love and one to hate. And if you say that there was any reason whatsoever that God saved one and not the other, if you want to say there was anything in them that made God choose them, let Paul's words ring in your ears. Having done nothing, either good or bad. If you say God chose Jacob because he looked through time and saw that Jacob would believe, you've just denied what Paul says. His point in bringing up the fact that God chose before either did good or bad is to point out that the good and bad of each man had nothing whatsoever to do with his choice. Jacob believing at some point in time would be good. But his choice had nothing to do with their good or their bad. It doesn't depend on either. Paul is striving to make us see that when God wants a son of promise like Isaac, He makes him. Even if the parents are old and barren, when God wants to set His love on one and not the other, He makes one to set His love on and makes another to not set His love on. When He wants the older to serve the younger, then He makes the younger to rule over the older. He never fails. Because none of it depends on us. It's exactly as verse 11 says. In order that God's purpose, not man's purpose, It's God's purpose of election. He chooses in order that God's purpose of election might continue or stand, not because of works, but because of... And it doesn't say faith. Usually we see works compared with faith. It's not of works. It's because of God's call. God effectually calls to Himself whomever He wills. This is where we get the idea of unconditional election. God's purposes of election stand. There's no condition in us that has to be met. Now folks, take this with great joy. It's the truth of the Bible. Don't argue with it. But let me tell you this. So many people want to say, oh, God elects. I'm not elect. So how, can, how in the world can you come to that conclusion? You know what? What unconditional election does for us is this. It makes your acceptance with God unconditional. In this sense, that there is no wickedness that you have done that in any way stands in the way of you being one of God's elect. Do you realize that? That's why we say it's unconditional. No matter how bad you've been, it's not a condition. It opens the door for us. So often we want to twist it into something that makes us stay away from God. It doesn't do that. It kicks the door wide open to say, God chooses irrespective of what sins you've ever done. What can stand in the way of you being saved since God doesn't choose based on any good or bad? No bad you've ever done can prevent you from being no bad or good. Now here, I told you guys several weeks ago, and I'm just going to wrap up with this. I want to make a warning here. I told you several weeks ago, I gave you four different warnings about handling Romans 9. I told you if you're not careful, one of my warnings was, it's, there's a possibility for you to take Romans 9 and distort the character of God or the character of man or the gospel itself. And I believe right at this point, if you misunderstand this, you can distort all three. Let me tell you something. God elects unconditionally. Before men have ever done any good or any bad, He sets His love on men. He foreknows them from eternity past. Which doesn't mean to just foreknow what they'll do. It's foreknow with His affection and love in eternity past. He placed that love. He had that affection. He determined to to love and to to make His own a certain people. And He predestinated them to be conformed to the very image of Jesus Christ. 
I want to tell you this. His election, His choosing is unconditional. But let me point this out. Being saved is not unconditional. Being justified, which means being declared perfectly righteous based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, justification is not unconditional. Judgment day is not unconditional. Get what I mean by that? God chooses not based on anything He sees in you. But nobody is saved apart from repentance and faith. Nobody is justified except by faith in Jesus Christ. And nobody will stand in the judgment day who does not have works that maintain and sustain and prove the God-given faith they have. You say, whoa, how does that work? How do, you, how do you say God chooses unconditionally and yet I'm saved by condition? Just this. God determines to save in eternity past. He elects men. He chooses them. Now in the course of time, they're born, they come into this world, they fall into sin and iniquity and transgression, evil and wickedness of all sorts of kinds. Faith is a gift of God. And so, at such a time as God determines to call this elect chosen vessel unto Himself, He gives the gift of faith to the person. In their believing on Jesus Christ, they are justified. They are held in the very palm of God's hand being conformed to the image of Christ, they are kept through the power of God right out until that day of judgment, workmanship of Christ, doing the works that were foreordained, prepared for them, so that on judgment day, the very works like Christ did are evident in their very lives and sustain the very fact that God indeed was working and gave them the faith that He always gives to His elect in the course of time. Now folks, that's how it works out. And you know what? This is not meant to turn anybody away from God. This is not meant to confuse. This is not meant to discourage. I'll tell you what this is meant to do. Paul brings all this up. He delves into these deep doctrines not just simply to cause us all to be frustrated. He brings these up for this one major reason. God's Word never fails. And you know why it doesn't fail? Because salvation never depends on man. It depends on Almighty God. And He will see to it His promises come to pass every single time. Salvation does not depend on man. Put away your gloating and boasting. It does not depend on us. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, every, every true Christian, when we get into the presence of Christ, we are going to cast crowns at His feet. We're going to, we, we know. You know what? When we stand there with the other children of promise, with Isaac, with Abraham, with Jacob, and there we are, and we're with them, and we see Esau, and we see Ishmael, and we see the other children of the flesh. We're not going to say, oh God, I was glad I'm smarter than that lot. It's going to be, God, You did this. That's what the doctrine of election is made to do. It is made to humble the pride of man. To make us realize we don't have this thing in our hands. It's made to cause us to worship. Listen to me. When you're all neck deep in sin, you're being smothered by your own wickedness. You are in the grip. Sin's got you by the throat. You're lust, man. You're... you're the, the alcohol. The pornography. Jealousy and the envy and the deep-rooted things that eat up the souls of men 
when it's got you in its grip. What do you want? Do you want a flimsy God like most of the world teaches? Or do you want the God of Romans 9? Do you want a God who when He comes to your aid, there's nothing standing in the way? Is that not the God you want? It doesn't matter if you're barren. It doesn't matter if you're old. It doesn't matter if you're wicked. It doesn't matter. God's busting through the whole thing. And He's going to come. And His power is at your disposal. Is that not what you want? That's what I want. You see, folks, you're no winner if you make God out to be weak and impotent and dependent on you. Because then you've got to live with that kind of God and He's not much of a help when things get rough and when you need a Savior. Folks, let me tell you this. You say, I can't figure all this out. That's okay. You know what? Paul gets to the end of these three chapters and this is what he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable beyond finding out are His ways. For who has known His mind? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Inscrutable means impossible to search out. Look, if you say, I'm not getting all this. Let me tell you this. The very guy that taught it got to the end and says, Ah, it's just blowing my mind. I can't figure it all out. But that's good. We want a God like that. Because, hey, think with me here. One of the things that ought to convince you the God of Romans 9 is the true God. Man would never make God out to be like that. I guarantee you that. He is not a figment of any man's imagination. Look at all the gods made by the Romans and the Greeks. Look at all the gods man has made through history. None of them ever look like that. Well, I know, I know these are tough doctrines, but they're good and they're glorious. I mean, God is amazing. And I, I just encourage you, if you don't know this God, He is known through His Son, Jesus Christ. You trust Him and you will know His powerful, sovereign, saving ways. And He can free the worst, vilest wretch from whatever's got it in its grips. This is a God to have. He's a mighty fortress. We sing a song like that. He is indeed. The God of Romans 9 is not a God to be messed with. We're thankful to have one like that and He's on our side. That means nothing that can stand against us will ever prosper. Nothing. Well, amen. May God help you to grasp these things. Next week, Charles Leiter will be here, Lord willing. The week after that, we go even deeper into Romans 9, and folks, it gets heavier still. So, hold on tight. You're dismissed.